0: Good morning and welcome to episode 52 of the Cood Street Podcast. This morning or this afternoon or even this evening, we're joined by Gary K. Wolf in Chicago. Good morning, Gary.
1: Um, good evening, Jonathan. I'm always amazed when we have a guest on this, that you actually give us an introduction like that. Thank you. I feel like I'm official.
0: <laughs> and, and we're also joined by award-winning novelist Karen Lord, author of Redemption and in Indigo, who's coming from us live from the Caribbean. Good evening, Karen.
2: Good, good evening, Jonathan, and good evening, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you so much for inviting me.
1: We're delighted. We're delighted to have you here. Uh, as I said, when we were emailing back and forth, it feels like continuing several conversations we began and never finished when we were um, at the International Conference on the Fantastic. But mm-hmm, the,
2: definitely,
1: and, and, and the fact that, that you actually started listening to us, uh, which I'm, we're both <laughs> enormously <excited for. laughs> against all logic, <laughs> against all, logic. Yeah, it, it, it all common sense on your part. I'm, my goodness, I'm looking out my window. Chicago is completely fogbound now. It's, it's very gothic outside. Wow. Which is kind of nice. Mm. And, and you're, geez, Karen, you're in the one place we would all like to be. I think. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it's very hot and humid right now, so I don't know how much you might like it. I have a cup full of ice right next to me.
0: Oh, and are those frogs we hear in the background? There's there's, there's an mm-hmm. the ambient those noise. Those are the noisy
2: frogs. There's ambient
0: mm-hmm.
2: noise. Wonderful. Environmental ambient noise. <laughs>
0: And, of course, here it's a reasonably bright sort of late autumn morning. So we had a lot of rain and fog yesterday, but today it's sort of bright and sunny and cool and fresh, which is really nice. Mm Hmm. Before we get started in earnest, I, I should say because we are triangulating between the, these three locations, there might be the occasional dropout in the podcast uh, you know, because of Skype's idiosyncrasies, and we do apologize in advance for that. That's that's our fault. But you know, those of you who have been listening to the podcast low these many months as we move into the second big year of the podcast will be familiar with our level of technical expertise, and hopefully, will forgive us in advance. Now.
1: Sure. Yep, our new slogan is no
0: expectations. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sticking with always certain, f- uh, occasionally correct. Yeah, that's good. Who was that? <laughs> it was John uh, Macklemont's, right? I think m- might have been, yeah. So, yeah. so Karen, as as, as a mm-hmm. you know, as a sometime listener and a first time um, a guest, you you contacted us the other week uh, when I asked for questions, and as often happens, mm-hmm. because I'm because we're the way we are, we intended to talk about the questions we, that were raised, but we didn't. And the question, if mm-hmm. I recall it correctly, pretty much was: you wanted you were, you mentioned that we should discuss cultural preconceptions in fantasy and regional preconceptions in fantasy. Is that about it?
2: Yes, and and personal for that matter. Yes, absolutely.
0: So, so what mm-hmm. kind what what did you have in mind when you when you raised the question?
2: Well, the time I had been looking at a news report, which had been speaking about accusations of sorcery, and I believe it was Iran. Mm. And I I thought to myself, um, you know, this, this is kind of interesting, because um, you, you sometimes get news reports where there's um, some sort of um, belief in witchcraft or sorcery, Mm. and maybe somebody's being tormented. And it's, sometimes at a folk level, and this happens in, in, in many different countries, but when you actually have, um, shall we say, um, almost at a, a formal or professional level, that's not the right mm. word. What am I looking for? Well, it, it was it was sort of the authorities, the people in yeah. power who were saying this. It wasn't some little folk thing in, in a village being dismissed. Sure. And I thought, you know, this is fascinating because you, you actually have... Um, a sort of an, an approved belief, in a sense, mm. that can be acted upon. You know, these people can be charged for this. Yeah. So, you know, this is this is the world that we are in, even if some people, you know, kind of almost forget about that. And um, it started me thinking again about um, some of the fiction that, for example, we have in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, that it has elements of fantasy, elements of speculative fiction, but. Um, per- Perhaps the lines are not drawn as as sharply, because...
1: Hello? Well, not every culture has the same notion of what is or what is not fantastic, and not every historical period has the same notion of what is or is not fantastic.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm. I think what also, I mean, what what strikes me when I hear you talk about that, and because I was just, I just edited a book of uh, stories about witches. So I was looking at various manifestations of witchcraft around the world. And the articles Mm -hmm. I was reading were talking about how through various parts of the world, as of right now, just as you say, witchcraft is a crime set down in the statute books. So to some degree, the authorities Mm -hmm. are giving it the credence of being a real worldview rather than being, something we'd put into a fantasy book and what occurred to me at least was yes it, exactly. it's, it's very much like the way that although the, the issue that comes up when we look back to say medieval or pre-medieval not that i'm equating the cultures but pre-medieval uh worldviews where the supernatural was not a fantastical thing. It was an actual. There was nothing supernatural about the supernatural. Mm-hmm. It was part of the natural. And that does fundamentally change how you view, um, mm-hmm. telling stories. I mean, I think the example yeah. that, I, that I come up with and, uh, you, you'd be familiar with the discussion. Certainly Gary, I know is mm-hmm. the one that say guy, Gabriel Kay has about respecting worldviews and cultures when you're creating fantasy stories, because you can't put your, yourself in their, their place. And similarly, the one that I think, uh, Cecilia Holland brings in, about how, um, you know, there there are fantastic elements, but they they, they were real at the time. I mean, I think we all do have different views like that that Mm -hmm. prevail, even when we're unaware of it. Uh, Sometimes things seem to be honoured culturally for other reasons. I mean, the example here in Australia would be, in some cases, Aboriginal law is given uh, some kind of equivalency to uh, statute law. And and the things and and yet mm-hmm. they're based on pre, such completely disparate preconceptions of the world. You know uh, that the Aboriginal world, has a very as it's mm-hmm. described, and I don't pretend to understand know that much about it, certainly has that sort of supernatural element built into it as a fact. I mean, and that does has to color mm-hmm. what you're doing. it, and certainly changes. I mean, it, surely, I mean, I, I guess this is part of what you're coming at. It must color the whole magic realism concept because if magic realism really just becomes an expression of a greater natural view, if you like, rather than a fantastical view.
2: Maybe?
0: Mm -hmm. uh, Uh, I
2: like the word worldview that you use, yeah.
0: um, Yeah, and and, and one of
1: the things that... I'm I'm, I'm sure that... I I don't know if I want to use the word victim, but it seems to me that one of the easy ways of categorizing Caribbean and Latin American writers is the phrase magic realism. Mm. Which I think is terribly Mm -hmm. overused, by the way but the one quotation i remember about it i don't know if it's garcia marquez but everything anybody says about magical realism is attributed to garcia marquez was that it's a realistic novel set (laughs) in a world which the people in that world believe in these events so the events are presented uh seamlessly as as realistic events because the culture sees those as real Um, Mm -hmm. and i've read a fair amount of, of of uh academic criticism about magic realism which seems to miss that point altogether. It's, it's, it's talking about introducing fantastic elements into a otherwise realistic narrative, which I don't think that the distinction between fantastic elements and the realistic narrative are are, are, are that distinct in, 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 um, in, in, let's say, 100 years of So
0: No? And Sorry,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying desperately not to overlap with people. No, no, no.
0: Go ahead, please. I'm, I'm, Feel <laughs> overlap.
1: That's not a problem with us.
2: <laughs> okay. Um, I was saying, um, I like your example. I like your example because, um, in many ways, um, reading that book to me was a very, um, familiar, kind of story, and. I think it was only after I'd read it that I really understood that it was classified as magical realism or understood what the term magical realism was supposed to mean. And I thought to myself, well, there's an awful lot of Caribbean literature that's going to look like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Certainly. Th- Africa for that matter as well. And, and so, well, I mean, certainly the stuff that we seem to hear of here seems to you know, fall into that pattern. And the writers that I would think of, at least within our field that are, Uh, come from the Caribbean, seem to write in that sort of tradition, at least. And when you look at, say, um, oh, I'm thinking of um, Nala Nala Hopkinson. That's what I was thinking of, actually. And and to a lesser extent, uh, Toby Mm Bacalli, I guess, even though he he writes slightly less. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll
2: tell you what makes me curious. Um, (laughs) I can see maybe from the writer's point of view um, how, how they're sort of picturing it in all the same thing that you said Gary you know you're you're writing a story and you're citing it with the beliefs of the of the people who are um who are of that place but how does how does the reader who's coming from a different culture who does not have that view I always wonder how they see it and and whether they um take quite a few things away from the story that um, the author didn't intend that maybe even detract from the real focus of the story. I don't know if I'm making sense there, but, you know, it, it almost changes the story entirely. mm
1: mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know if readers are always that unsophisticated. I think there's a... I, I wrote an essay once in which I was trying to figure out how you locate... If something is fantastic, how do you locate a fantastic element in the story? And the, the two extremes are the personal fantastic, which is uh, essentially schizophrenia. Uh, I, I did an article years ago on all these popular novels. I don't know if either of you remember. The, back in the 60s and 70s, there was a whole subgenre of of schizophrenia narratives. The most famous one was, uh, I called I, I Never Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Uh, and if you actually read that novel, there are parts of it that you can read that as a, yeah. I think it's a fantasy novel. Um, because uh, you can read William mm-hmm. Blake as a fan- so that's one extreme, very personal, fantastic. The other extreme is the what you what you described as a worldview, the, the a mythological system, which uh, or or a belief system in which something like, let's say, the Odyssey is located. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. if anybody today really reads the Odyssey or the Divine Comedy as a fantasy, uh, but mm-hmm. writers who are working today don't have those. Uh, easy divisions. You know, you're know, you not writing in the Middle Ages. You're not writing in ancient Greece. You're writing now. So you're writing for an audience which partly may know something about the culture and partly may see elements of of the culture you're writing about as, as being fantasy elements which you've invented. Um, and sometimes it's hard to figure out which is which.
0: Do you think the intention of a term like magic realism for all its limitations, uh, that it gives readers who are not versed with the – uh, the, the culture that the book comes the story comes from a framework to at least try to imagine it in because i mean i think you're right you I mean there are all kinds of c- contextual tools and 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 ideas and notions that you have when you come from the same culture that you bring to something and you understand what's meant uh that either you know o- over time mm-hmm. will, will disappear i mean i don't know that we whilst we read dickens in a similar way to the you know it's the same language, but things have changed, that things don't mean quite the same anymore. And I'm sure the, what that story right. meant exactly. But similarly, if it comes from the Caribbean, similarly if it comes from parts of Africa, then it's going to be completely different to someone coming from Belfast, Northern Ireland. Or in fact, I've got to say, mm-hmm. and this is this is interesting, is, is, is the alternate true? I mean, is the Western culture so, so pervasive that that doesn't work in reverse or is there a different perspective when you bring a, a, a novel written by somebody living in London and put it in, you know, give it to somebody living on the opposite side of the world who has no, no experience or familiarity with that culture? Do they take a completely different take on that book? I mean, does it go both ways?
2: Hi, we're, so, we're so globalized in, in so many areas mm. that I guess it would be hard not to be aware, as you say, but I, I do think that perhaps we can lump some groups together a little more easily than others and not necessarily correctly mm-hmm. um when you say for example magical realism I give people a framework as to sort of what to expect um there are um if all the magical realism seems to just mean sort of um non-western mm. or not american then that's that's rather broad a brush in a way mm-hmm. um, and and still 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 leaves gaps for, for possible misinterpretations. Um, but, I mean, what do you do? Do you tell somebody you need to research this culture before you pick up the literature? Or do you even tell them you need to research it at the same time as you're reading the literature to, to get the, the parallels and so forth? What do you think about that? That's hard work, isn't it?
0: Well, my own take on it is that you let a reader experience a book as it is. I mean, I've been fortunate over the last oh, 10 years to read books in manuscript rather than pub- you know, when they're published. And and the gift mm-hmm. that gives you is you can only read you know, the, the words that are there. You don't get the cover. You don't get the packaging. You don't get the imagery. You don't get the reviews. All that context that comes with it, which tells you how to interpret the book you're about to read. And I'm not, I'm not, which is exactly what it does. I mean, if you think about it, uh, it's not, you know, we don't really get the chance, I guess, to pick up a hundred years of solitude without being told all sorts of things about it. Um, (laughs) and, and I wonder if we, you just have to allow that readers are going to take texts as they're given them, you know, as much as possible, that these kind of things we're talking about, this idea of cultural preconception, which is no doubt there, and also cultural knowledge that you don't have are just part of Allowing texts out into the world, and just, mm-hmm. just I mean, just as I assume that a, a book written in one part of the Caribbean will mean more somewhere else in the Caribbean than it might mean, or means something slightly different right? than, than than it would if someone read you know, in Ireland or Australia or whatever else, and vice versa, you nonetheless allow that that's the life of a text it gets discovered by a reader and they do misinterpret some things and that's okay and they do accept some things and that's okay i mean isn't is okay? isn't it mm-hmm. fine for a book to go out into the world and have its own life
2: um gary you've
0: been quiet <laughs> i was
1: thinking i have i have in front of me now the uh, the uh, advanced reading copy that i got of, of redemption and indigo which i got so, more, about a year ago now, maybe a little bit more than a year ago, from Small Beer, our friends Kelly and Gavin, mm. who do wonderful, but they they certainly put out a vanilla arc for this book. Um, the cover has a title, The in Indigo, a novel by Karen Lord, June 2010. No blurbs, nothing, absolutely nothing to go by. Mm. There's nothing, about, frankly, there's nothing about the name Karen Lord that suggests to me the Caribbean. Um So I started reading this exactly the way Jonathan described it, without any preconceptions at all. And it began with, just by sheer coincidence, since I've told you this before, Karen, I had taught this once, it began with a West African (laughs) folktale. I thought, well, I I don't know if this is an African writer, I don't know if it's an American writer. All I have to go on is what the story tells me to go on. And I thought it worked beautifully, that way. Now, had I approached this... Even with it's it's a very nice cover illustration, but I haven't seen the cover illustration. Even if I approached that this book with those preconceptions, I'm wondering if I would have been as stunned and delighted by it uh, by having expectations set up for me. You know what I mean?
2: Hmm. I do find that interesting because we've had um, cover controversies before, haven't we?
0: Mm. Oh, very much. I mean, the obvious one comes. um, Justin Larbalestier's book *Liar*, for example.
2: Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. and I did in fact have a conversation with someone um, who um, w- they were of the opinion that if they they felt that if they saw a, a cover with um, the, the um, black protagonists on the front, that their initial assumption would be to find this book in the African American section. Um, there was this was just. Th- just giving me their honest opinion. I'm not yeah. I'm not going to to um you know but um Honestly, but it did it did make me wonder in a way because um if if we do end up judging a book by a cover, not just by who's on the cover, but even the style of the cover, because certain types of book have sure. Certain styles of the... covers. Yeah. Uh, um are uh, we are we spoon feeding readers to do that too much, do you think?
1: I don't think we can realistically expect publishers to to put completely blank covers on all books. I mean, in an ideal world, it's... <laughs> I don't think no, we even want to. So no. uh, but there there are classic examples of, of books being... Uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, when the first American mass-market paperbacks uh, appeared of Octavia Butler's Patternist novels, they didn't want to put a, a an obviously black woman on the cover but they didn't want to misrepresent it by putting a, a white woman on the cover so they put a green woman on the cover that <laughs> doesn't seem, seems like a reasonable compromise not really <laughs> <laughs> <But Of course. laughs> it's science fiction you can get away with anything right
0: I mean I I understand that you know, the the demands of both commerce and marketing. And I mean, uh, Small Beer put a lovely cover on Redemption and Indigo, but I do take the point as well. I mean, when I heard, I heard of Redemption and Indigo before I'd heard of Karen Lord. And if I had picked that book up the way Gary did, I think I would have approached it differently than seeing the book as it's printed, not only because it name basically says, you know, you're a Caribbean writer. So, you know, and, and it has a, black woman on the cover and so it's saying this is a a a novel from from another culture it's a caribbean novel be aware of all this because it's going to culture it's going to involve engage the text in some way and that is an immediate filter you put on before you read the open the first page of that book and read the, the first line of it and that you know, it has a real impact, much as it did when I mean when uh, Nalo's first book came out. You know, it had the same kind of same kind of thing. I don't, don't think it had a black woman on the cover, but still, the, the the whole slant on it was the same. In a way that they don't turn around and say, or oh, do they? What, I mean, would you typically expect that when the new Joe Abercrombie novel comes out, it'll say, you know, a fantastic new new novel from uh, Caucasian writer Joe C- Cron- uh, Abercrombie from Britain? yeah you know, we don't we we tend to sort of let that that drop into the background and not be a part of the discussion as opposed to have it being integral to the framework and the how we're presenting a text. I think
1: I think you're right. Um, and i'm'm I'm, I'm curious, Karen, if you had a if you've had any sort of a different reaction uh, within the uh, Caribbean community to redemption in and indigo from the reaction you've gotten from uh, from the US and the UK.
2: Well, um, in, well in, some, in some ways, I, I, I naturally expect there to be a difference. Sometimes I'm amazed that anybody, oh, the Caribbean, gets it at all, because there is wow. so much in there that's, you know, a lot of in-jokes for people in the Caribbean. But what I did find interesting is that I had a lot of, of readers say to me something along the lines of, I don't really read fantasy, but I loved your book.
0: Mm-hmm. This happened a lot
2: um, in, in the Caribbean. And I thought to myself, well, well this is very interesting. Do they themselves have a, a a framework of fantasy, which is, well, structured on the on the Western literature concept of what fantasy is?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and and their their filter coming to my book was, uh, you know, I was saying to them, well, you know, it's a fantasy novel. And then they put that filter on
0: yeah. and,
2: and kind of had to shake off that prejudice in order to be able to access it as a a Caribbean book, um, a, a human interest book, whatever you want to call it. Mm. So I guess, I guess we all have our filters coming from one direction or another.
0: Well, I do think it's true that the fa- the fantasy filter for almost everybody, and this might be arrogant to say, but I suspect it's true. The fantasy filter is David Eddings and J.R.R. Tolkien and, uh, Terry Brooks and, and that, perception, you know, sort of epic fantasy, green rolling fields, horses, swords, witches, warlocks, whatever. And that's what people, particularly uh, when, when you tell them you've got a fantasy novel, that's what they expect. I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> and, and, I mean, it, it's one of those things I, th- yeah, I see it al- yeah. a- elsewhere where you see a real problem with people having a jarring expectation because you say, well, this is a fantasy novel. And they're going, okay. But what it's actually about is, say, it's a Sean Stewart novel set in Texas about somebody who has some odd supernatural power that impacts on his family where people are dying at barbecues kind of thing. And people are kind of going, but that doesn't sound like a <laughs> fantasy novel. Uh-huh. Where's the sword and the horse? You know, there should be. A... And well, this I, 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 yeah, I'm, sure. I'm absolutely
1: sure people picked up Redemption and in Indigo and said, this is, can't be a fantasy novel. It's too short.
0: <laughs> but it, do you think it was yeah. <laughs> Do you think David, it was
1: David told me Once David Hardwell was, uh, yeah. Talking to a visiting a class somewhere in upstate New York, I guess, and talking to a group of teenagers and uh, about publishing and about David Hartwell knows a lot about publishing, obviously. Mm. And asked one of the kids uh, what he liked to read, and the kids said trilogies.
0: Well, people have very f- set tastes in books, Gary. I mean, I think I've told the story before about working in a bookstore one day and somebody coming in, and to cut a very long story short, all she wanted was. Books about talking dragons, but specifically books right. about nice talking dragons, not mean.
2: <laughs> that could become a new subgenre. <laughs> I hope not. I really, really
0: hope
1: not. This is somebody who read Kenneth Graham's The Reluctant Dragon when they were a kid and have been trying to get back to it ever since. Probably.
2: Ah. So is this fantasy as comfort food?
0: I think it's well. I think a good chunk of fantasy is portrayed that way. If not comfort food, at least as immersive experience and secondary world sort of way of living or perceiving the world. Hmm. How do you feel about *Redemption* and *Indigo* being taken as a fantasy novel?
2: I'm, I, I intended it as a fantasy novel. Um, um, Gary, who, well, I have to admit, I was, I was startled and pleased. To hear that Gary had read the original folktale,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, I thought it was kind of lost in the mists of time or something. <laughs> but permission um, had no speculative fiction aspects to it whatsoever. There was there was nothing in there that um, would not happen in the normal realist world. Um, any anything that is out of the ordinary is is things that I made up and, and squashed in. So it was, it was a very clear intent from the beginning that it would be fantasy. And, and fantasy, hmm, how to put it? Fantasy, yes, but there's a little mention of, of um, quantum physics, but mm-hmm. it doesn't really like you know feature in a sort of a science fiction fashion. Mm-hmm. But Actually, having going- said that... <laughs> sorry, go ahead.
1: Uh, uh, go ahead with that thought, because I, I, I was going to bring that up if you didn't.
2: Okay. Um, having said that, it kind of harks back to what we were discussing earlier, where, um, you know, we were talking about people's different worldviews. Sure. And, um, and there are things that we see other people believing, whether because of their culture or because of individual um, belief or whatever. And we say, well, that can't happen. That's not a fact, you know. So, but at the same time, certain th- things are perceived and are interpreted in different ways. So I have um, people sort of popping in and out of existence. Mm. But instead of saying, you know, they're snapping their fingers and doing it by magic, I say, well, they're quantum beings and they can, you know, sort of like move through the fabric of space-time in their own special way, um, which is still hand-wavy sci-fi, you know, let's be honest. Yep. But it's, it's it sort of shows <laughs> you that, that same kind of, you know, the whole kind of um the old, the old quotation about science and magic at some states being kind of indistinguishable mm.
1: or or um uh, einstein's spooky action at a distance or whatever it is uh you, you actually studied physics though didn't you you got a degree in physics don't you
2: um yeah my, my was, yes that was so mm. long ago please don't ask me to say anything oh. physics <laughs>
0: You, you could just okay. confirm to us that uh, quantum mechanics makes no sense at all, though. Sorry, say again? I said you could just confirm for us that pot, that quantum physics makes no sense at all.
2: Um, <laughs> well, oh. it depends on who's teaching it. It depends <laughs> on who's teaching it. I had I had two professors. One of them made it an absolute living hell, and the other one made it kind of fun. And I was like, how is this possible? You know, I, as you say, the initial one was like, this makes no sense. I don't even believe this. Mm-hmm. And then the other one made it just seem just sort of beautiful and elegant. Mm-hmm. So so what can you do? Hope for a
0: good teacher. <laughs> it's want to start talking about quantum computers that know the the answers to questions before you ask them. That sounds like fantasy.
2: Where did you read that? That sounds like fantasy. Well, that? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like
0: fantasy.
2: <laughs> I'm sure but I read that be-
1: somewhere. Well, one of the things that absolutely stunned me when I came across it was, was uh, in, in, in Redemption of Indigo. It, it has a, a lot of fantasy, a lot of familiar folk elements in it, I guess. I guess we should make, there are probably three distinctions we should make there's folk, there's fantasy, and then there's some science fiction. And one of the major mm-hmm. devices, MacGuffins, I guess, in redemption, and it was go something called the chaos. And I thought that's kind of yeah. neat. That's kind of a religious metaphor. And then and then you started talking about quantum fluctuations and, and implying Physicists <laughs> think about it. And maybe there's a bit of science fiction in here somewhere. And guessing that that was as much an end to science fiction readers as the Caribbean in jokes were for the Caribbean. Readers.
2: I am afraid that there was a very large clip-out bit, and I missed quite a bit of what you said just now. Um, you mm-hmm. were talking about the Chaotic, I heard that, and then you said oh. something about Caribbean readers, science fiction, something? Oh, what I
1: said was, uh, with that and with an implication of, of wormholes in the novel, it looked mm-hmm. to me like there mm-hmm. were in-jokes for science fiction readers, as maybe not as much as, but just like there were in-jokes for Caribbean readers, as you mentioned.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is indeed possible. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's hard to stick to these these borders and boundaries. I mean, it's no fun sometimes. No, of course not.
0: Well, that that is and, the the prevailing you know, motif of, of our age, is it not? When it comes to, uh, in fact, most culture, most cultural artifacts that that boundaries get are are being thrown away, and we're allowed to do what we want. If yeah. we weren't anyway.
2: Well, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. if the story works, I mean, this is my bottom line in reading anything, or reviewing anything I should say, is if if the story convinces me that, okay, it's, okay for a few minutes here, it's going to be quantum physics, and then we'll go back to it's being magic. Is there any real difference <laughs> in the context and in the terms set up by the story itself?
2: I think Another the way. feeling you get is a feeling of magic, isn't it? Either way. Mm. Because you're never going to fully understand, what, what was it Jonathan said, quantum mechanics makes no sense. Mm. So immediately it's magic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to some want- degree it just has to be consistent magic, doesn't it? I mean, isn't, isn't that, you know, exactly. in a story that's really the rule. If it's science fiction kind of thing, as long as it's consistent and we can tell ourselves that it's it, real world, then it looks great. As long as it's got its r- real world pants on, that's okay. But if it doesn't, it can be fantasy as long as it's consistent we're happy. You just can't have inconsistent fantasy or inconsistent science in 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 one of these books.
2: Well, strictly speaking, you could if it were along the style of I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Mm -hmm. Um, If you had a book that was written where um, part of it is actually happening inside the person's mind or sort of a journey Mm -hmm. of self interior exploration, um, all bets could indeed be off.
1: I think one of the things that uh, that's, that's one of the things that makes Kafka work. Yeah. You never understand whether what's happening is in the narrator's mind or or or, or whether it's happening or whether it makes any difference. Um, I mean, one of the questions that comes up every once in a while when people are talking about definitions of fantasy is: Is *The Metamorphosis* really a fantasy story in the modern sense of the word? Mm. And I'm not sure I know the answer to that.
2: Mm-hmm. But then again, is there a modern sense of the word fantasy?
1: Well, it's what Jonathan was talking about earlier, that people have a market sense of when... when okay, the, fair enough, yeah. A, a bulk of the market thinks of fantasy. They're thinking about a certain specific genre with formulas, with characters, with icons, with imagery that uh, is consistent from one book to the next. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, the mystery... That toward the end, and I'm, I'm going to embarrass you now, Karen, because there are a couple of lines in... Redemption and Indigo that I actually quote to people, and that does not happen to me very often. You have this very, what's the word, insouciant narrator uh, who says at one point, um, I'm not uh, geez, okay, I'm gonna turn um, Who says? Let me think. Let me find this page. Um, just one one. I'll be right back. I'll <laughs>
0: We have to talk amongst ourselves. Okay. <laughs> well, 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 whilst, he, whilst he's gathering his thoughts and answering his phone, because again, slickly professional studio quality uh, broadcasting here.
2: We got, uh, uh, but of course, uh, got everything
1: you want in the podcast. Here's the quotation I want okay, to uh, make. Um, and <laughs> my narrator says toward the end of this novel, when we're we wondering about all the unanswered questions, and 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 our classic fantasy reader that Jonathan described earlier is wondering what's going to happen in volume two. The narrator says, why should I encourage you in this inappropriate interest in beings you cannot fully understand? And that should be a slogan for all of science fiction and fantasy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> but you know, people are going to argue that that's the whole point of speculative fiction, that there are, there are creatures that we don't understand and the author is supposed to get us to, to sympathize with them, to, to identify in some way. To introduce us to the other by by this sort of bridging.
0: Can you legitimately but, demystify the other that way?
2: Mm-hmm. Some can. I don't know. If, I don't know if it's something that um, we're always successful about. I mean, fantasy has its own share of using particular types of others as as stereotypes. And I use mm. the term stereotype to mean in a way a symbol. So you get you know, some fantasies where, let's say, all the dwarves are grasping and avaricious and interested in gold. Well, unless you're Pratchett where you play it as a joke. <laughs> um, or, you, or you get the elves being all wise and, and inscrutable and, and so forth. And, and then the stereotype becomes more of a symbol that's then used within the plot and you may have one or two people who stand out and are real characters. Um, so it, it's possible. But um, I think that... I think that in a way, there are very few books I have read, and this is a challenge for me because I have been trying to find them, that, um, that deal with the idea of a being that is not human and treat that being as if it is truly not human. I'm talking about, for example, um, vampires who really would not fall in love with a human mm-hmm. being. Um, but would you know? Perhaps actually see them as food, <laughs> and 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 do this, and and have a kind of a mindset, and and everything that is, is really truly alien. Oh, hold it! I have thought of an example. Mm-hmm. The gods themselves, um, Asimov's The Gods yeah, themselves. Yeah. Um, the the middle part of that book, which I absolutely adore, mm-hmm. I think is one of the best um, descriptions of an alien race I've ever encountered. Because you, you really, really, really believe that these are just completely different people. Mm-hmm. And yet there's some things that are just so familiar that you just kind of slot into their lives and, and, and you're, you're, you're very happy to, to, um, to just sort of feel what they feel and experience what they experience. And then you kind of go away from it thinking, I can't even imagine exactly what they look like. <laughs> and it's fine because it was deeper than that. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's one way, that's one way
1: interesting example, and uh, and I've often thought that was one of his best novels and probably one of his least characteristic novels as well, because he leaves things unanswered yeah. at the end. Mm. Uh, and, and the opposite example probably mm-hmm. would be help who writes bizarre aliens uh, on, on planets that he invents, and he works out all the physics and the astronomy, uh, like the planet Mesklin and Mission of Gravity. And, and, and you've got these trilobite-like Creatures that exist in, in very heavy gravity situations, and then the story turns out to be a bunch of teenagers trying to <laughs> come home. I mean, it's, the characters <laughs> are <similar. laughs> um Actually, is so, uh, an example. Uh, you mentioned vampires as well. The example I would bring up to uh, to sort of present that image of the vampire is Susie McKee Charnas's vampires mm-hmm. in her story, about Vampire Tapestry, mm-hmm. and stories. They're completely uh, feral. They are completely unsympathetic. They see humans as nothing but food. Uh, it's a they're very tough-minded novels. And needless to say, in the in, in the new world of uh, vampire romances, Susie Charnas's books aren't being read as much as Stephanie Meyer's books are.
0: Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I Stephanie. Bo- but Stephanie Meyer's books aren't really about vampires, are they?
1: I I, I, I actually read the first one, yeah. and I. You're probably right. They're about really pale sexy <laughs> guys. <so. laughs>
0: yes. Making. making st- <laughs> uh, actually, your, your name-checking Asinov makes me sort of uh, think to ask a question I've been meaning to, which is: What? How? When you put out your, a fantasy novel, how how mm-hmm. familiar are you with the field? I mean, do, uh, is this? Uh, I'd not heard of you before this book. Uh, and I'm just sort of mm-hmm. curious, I mean, do you, do you see yourself as coming from the fantasy f- field? Are, I mean, obviously, if you're reading Asimov, you've been reading science fiction for years and years, I assume. <laughs> I don't know.
2: I'm chuckling because um, Gary's heard. Yeah. Mhm.
0: Dropout spot. We had a dropout? We've had a dropout.
1: Karen, are you still there?
0: This is where we should be playing music because, uh, really, we would fill this with something sensible. We're going to have to ask Karen to retell the story if she hasn't actually dropped out altogether, which she might have. We might have lost Karen. Oh, that's on. I coming back in. I think she's coming back in. Her picture just disappeared.
1: Um, but you raise an interesting question. We'll hope that Karen rejoins us at some point. Uh, here she comes. Um, that the number of interesting fantasy writers who know science fiction inside and out. And Garth Nix is the first one. Hello,
0: you're back. We lost Hi. you. We were lonely. We missed you.
2: No, oh God. Uh,
0: <laughs> I
2: don't know. I don't even know at what point I got
0: cut off. You got cut off the moment you started to answer the question about about, and you you just said Gary. To, you told the story to Gary before, and we lost uh-huh. you. And he knows how long the answer is.
1: <laughs> I don't mind listening again.
2: Okay, well, it starts with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien in primary school. Of course. Um, we had a teacher who read us the land, The Witch in the Wardrobe and The Hobbit. Um, um, it comes with Wynne Jones and Madeline Longa at the public library. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at secondary school, we have the school library filled with Bradbury, and Bradbury was actually on the, the reading list. Of as well. Um, Heinlein, Clark, Asimov, um, lots of good friends introducing me to various um, people along the way. Um, I think that even by the time I was, when I was teaching physics, there was a math teacher who introduced me to Frederick Pohl and Mm -hmm. Philip K. Dick. And I even had a student who has been trying to get me to read Neuromancer for the last, (laughs) oh goodness knows how long. And I mean... You have to understand, I, I taught him physics back when he was about 14 and he's now got his PhD in astrophysics or something like that, or, or, or aeronautical
0: uh-huh.
2: engineering or something like that, and I feel very bad about it. Um, so, I mean, there were just so many places that you could find science fiction um, and fantasy. Um, I I would say it was just my preferred genre. You look at my yeah. bookshelf now and it's evidence. Um Not to say that I do not read um, sort of outside of the genre. Um, I think that I have a particular attachment to some types of mysteries. And, yeah, I I think that, and and certain types of nonfiction as well. But it's it's mostly science fiction and fantasy. Oh, wait, hold on. I know why. I know exactly why. Mm -hmm. I discovered that the Children's Public Library um, was filled with science fiction and fantasy fantasy yeah and when I graduated as they say to the adult library it was so boring because I realized but there's only a fraction of speculative (laughs) fiction here and I wanted to go back (laughs) (laughs) and and I think I think that's sort of true in general of of when you compare sort of what's available in in children's literature and what's available for adult literature but that's probably how I got spoiled in the first
0: place yeah I I have to say I'm, I'm struck by the similarities because whilst you know, you're in the Caribbean and I'm in Australia. We're not of a dissimilar generation. And the one, at least, commonality we have, at least... Jonathan, is that, we what? are both members of the Commonwealth. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. But I mean... Yeah. I, I, but I discovered science fiction... Well, I had uh, C.S. Lewis read to me when I was in primary school. I discovered mm-hmm. science fiction through the local public library. Uh, I don't. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the only difference is that Science fiction was still all through the adult section. It had been bumped out of the kids' section when I was young. So, like, you got C.S. Lewis in the kids' section, and you got all sorts of animal books, you know, Tarka of the Otter and that kind of stuff for some reason. But all the uh-huh. science fiction books in our library had a color-coded uh, stamp on them, a little, little uh, circle. And all the pink books, okay. I don't know why, all, all the books with pink circles on them were science fiction. So I just read every okay. pink-dotted book in the library. <laughs> Oh, dear. Okay. And, and that colored everything ever after. But I am i am—I am struck by the fact that in different parts of the Commonwealth, there's that commonality as well. I mean, that's something that's – I heard um, Toby Bacow talking about, you know, being a Commonwealth writer and what it is. Oh, yes. And, he know
2: about that. But what's mm-hmm. interesting
0: to me about it is, though, that I don't have the same quite perception as that he does because obviously his flavor of the Commonwealth is different from my flavor of the Commonwealth. You know, growing up in a stinking hot classroom in Perth, west Australia... Sorry, can, can you say that again? I missed a bit. Sorry, just that his flavor of the Commonwealth okay. is, would be different... Can you hear to, me? Yeah, I can, yes. Can you hear me? Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Hello? Missed, I, I missed
2: quite a large bit there before.
0: Okay, let, let me try again. I, I was just saying that it struck me that Toby's... I can flavor, hear you now. Okay. Hello? Yep, it struck me that Toby's flavor of the Commonwealth was different from <laughs> the one that I had. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, and so that I was growing up in Perth, West Australia, where in 1970, it was stinking hot, and there was no air conditioning in the classroom, and there's pictures of Queen Elizabeth II on the wall, and we sang God Save the uh-huh. Queen, um, mm-hmm. that's that similarity, but it's still... I guess in, in that point in time when I'm growing up, it's white Australia as opposed, and very much white Australia in 1970 or 72, as opposed to what it was growing up in the Caribbean and how, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, the United Kingdom re- reacted to both of us as in different places, and obviously how that contrasts with mm-hmm. Canada, which is a much different Commonwealth kind of experience. It, it all colors it all, I
2: guess. True, true. So, It does. But I think that one thing that we might have in common, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is um, when I look at the the reading lists um, for the schools, Mm -hmm. there is a very, there's there's a definite um, move to bring in as much world literature as possible. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So we were always in a position of reading about people in other parts of the world. Yes. And in a way, you know, reading about aliens is then not such a big step after that. <laughs> so um, so, you, have, so you, you have already a familiarity of adjusting yourself to looking at a person's um, world and also worldview. That is not your own. You're already accustomed to looking out of the windows, as it were. Um, I don't know um, what it's like so much for um, the American experience or even the British experience in terms of how how varied their reading lists are? I honestly don't. know. Well, Garen? Well, I mean,
0: <clears throat>
1: I grew up uh, in, in very Midwestern America and uh, discovered an, an odd thing, which I've written about somewhere. Uh, at the public library, of course, I found Andre Norton novels. I found the Winston Juveniles by Donald Walheim and uh, some by Asimov, writing as Paul French, I believe. Um, but... The first book I remember reading was, uh, uh, was Bradbury, was the uh, Illustrated Man, in fact. I read that before the Martian Chronicles. There was a very odd thing mm-hmm. in the part of southern Missouri I grew up in, which is the, just the northern tip of the Ozark, which is that uh, very, well, there were kind of like um, Salvation Army kinds of stories, retail stores that sold used shoes. And if, I, I learned when I was eight or nine years old that if, if, a, if a shop down in this really bad area of town had lots of used shoes in the window, they would have science fiction books in the back. I have no idea to this day <laughs> why that happened. <laughs> and I remember picking up for 10 cents. A <laughs> I, I know it's, it's, uh-huh. it's, it's, it's a cultural thing. And it was not just in Springfield, Missouri, because Joplin, Missouri, other parts of Butler, Missouri, where Robert Heinlein grew up had the same thing. If you found used shoes, you could find science fiction. I don't know why. Um, And uh, I I started with Bradbury and then started just buying paperbacks because it was very (laughs) cheap. And it took me a while to get to Asimov. Actually, uh, the first Asimov novel I read was, I think, The End of Eternity, which I didn't like much at all, actually, Mm. at the time. And then later I began to realize there was a lot of interesting stuff here. And Mm. it took me a long time to get around to that it took me a while to get around to uh, C.S. Lewis and, um, and and Tolkien and so forth and so on. So I really began as a science fiction reader and came to fantasy in my mid-teens, if not late teens, I would say.
0: Okay. Interesting. I, I, I also seem to – I mean, we didn't have as much in the way of – Uh, science fiction and fantasy available in bookstores. I mean, I do remember picking up an awful lot of it in old secondhand stores, beaten-up copies of Doc Smith novels and Edgar Rice Burroughs novels and that sort of thing. That was an integral part of sort of picking up the field and just finding the stories, even if now they're either forgotten or incomprehensible. Uh, I mean, uh, I just saw someone's doing a book of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars stories, and, you know, you go back and you reread Princess of Mars, which I assume you've, you've both read. Um, and mm-hmm. it's a very different book to the one you remember, I tell you. Not as different as Skylark like of Space. I'd completely forgotten all the drugs in Skylark like of Space. <laughs> I haven't. You've not read Skylark like of Space? Mm-hmm. You don't need to read Skylark like of Space. Really no, don't. No,
2: really. Do.
1: <laughs> We're not going to go through our – the first several podcasts, I, I, I doubt if you started listening way back then, But we spent several weeks talking about books you don't need to read. And the Skylark of Space – if you have any image of it at all as being a classic, as being something that helped form modern science fiction, hold on to that image by not reading the book. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, it's, it's an important Another thing to be told. To be
1: told. And, and Edgar Rice Burroughs is a hell of a storyteller.
0: But there's, there's something very surreal about In fact... Um, Princess of Mars is a fantasy novel now, I mean, uh, that you can travel to another planet by walking into a cave, lying down and falling asleep. I mean, it doesn't exactly sound terribly practical, does it? You end well, up... it doesn't. Uh,
1: I have a... Th- I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, we're going on a digression here, but that's oh. what we do. I have a theory about the Princess <laughs> is the novel, or which was serialized in, I'm thinking, 1911 or 1912, something like that, um, in Argosy. Uh, that may be the novel that made the transition between Western fiction and science fiction, because he's not simply going to sleep in uh, in a cavern in Arizona. He's trapped by wild Indians, and there's absolutely no way he oh, can escape. Word. And he astrally projects himself to Mars, um, and and so, so it begins oh. as a West. Into the first chapter, it's a Martian novel. Mm. It's very strange.
2: Okay.
0: It, it, it's kind of, well, you know,
2: astral projection is far more scientific.
0: <laughs> oh yeah.
2: Than just, fall, than just fall, falling asleep. Yeah. <laughs> it's,
0: it's really, you know, it's it, it's gonna be a very strange film when it comes out next year. I tell you that. I mean, if it's anything like the the book at all, it's gonna be very strange. Egg-laying women and. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh, oh yes. Hello? Yes. Oh yeah, it's gonna be a
1: major film. I gather. I, don't, I forgot who's doing it
0: not uh, it's no. pixar it's a pixar movie was oh, it oh, going to be an animated film uh, i think it's actually pixar's first live action film or set half live action what? or something it's really, yeah, so. <sighs> so it's, oh i'm sorry jonathan no what you're saying
1: i was going to say i'm i'm just I'm curious karen that, that, that you, know, you grew up in barbados am i correct and that much yes. science fiction in that's the library, right uh, it just strikes me as odd that that uh, that you would have found that much science fiction uh, when you were a kid?
2: In my school library, um, it, I look back and I do think maybe it was a little odd, but um, I don't know. It's probably just one of those, possibly a cultural thing. I remember looking at a...
0: Oh, we dropped out again? Sounds like it. Oh, sounds like...
2: And um, right. it was like all science fiction. Can you hear
0: me? We lost you for th- most of that no. answer. Oh, no. <laughs>
2: uh, Can you remember the last minute? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're just explaining about how... Hello? You're just explaining about how it was to f- f- come ac- find books. Oh, wolves. no. Oh. I think we're going um, to gonna have good. to admit that this is probably... Maybe this is the ether telling us we're coming towards the end of the podcast.
2: It might I be.
0: think it might. Okay, well, you're back, Gary? <clears throat> well, 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 since you I are... Okay, well, since you're back, and <laughs> I can hear you, and Gary can hear you, I do want to say, I mean, we didn't say this at the top of the podcast because we were really going to talk about Redemption and Inigo later, and we did, but we didn't do this. First of all, since first time I've spoken to you, congratulations on the Crawford Award for the novel. Thank you. And congratulations on the very exciting news about it being shortlisted for the Mythopoic Awards. Thank you. Are you thinking about going to New Mexico?
2: <laughs> I wish I could go, but it's not gonna happen. <sighs>
0: it's an interesting, it's an interesting company you're amongst. I mean, uh, I've read Guy's novel; and it's it's very good, and I've read McKillop's novel; it's, yeah, you know, I think it's good as well. You must be feeling excited and edgy about it all.
2: I am feeling sufficiently excited and edgy that I'm convincing myself that I don't feel excited and edgy at all. I'm perfectly calm. I can handle this. There's nothing untoward happening in my life. (laughs) It's the only way to deal with it.
1: Are you working on another novel?
2: I am indeed. I am working on the sequel to Redemption. Mm -hmm. Um, I say sequel, but it'll probably be a bit standalone-ish. And that's where I'll deal with the challenge of, evolved well, talking about beings that humans can't fully understand. And, oh um, But I've also I also wrote about I also wrote a second manuscript, which is um, science fiction, mm-hmm. and I am hoping that that will will be picked up by someone who is willing to publish it.
0: Is anyone looking at it at the moment?
2: Am I allowed to say if they are? I- Okay. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know who is looking at it. I know that, that my agent is handling things. God bless her <laughs> because, oh no, because the, the whole, um, you know, trying to get a first book published thing was, was very stressful as I'm sure anybody mm. would be able to relate with. Um, and, um, by the time it came around to the second book, I was like, no, I don't think I'm doing this again. <laughs> so in a way, in a way I've, I've, I've shut myself off slightly from the process and just say, you know what, I'll just write this third one here and think about that alone, and, and she can call me if stuff happens.
0: <laughs> so that's <laughs> what I'm doing. Sounds eminently sensible. I was going
1: to say mm. it's an eminently sane attitude. <laughs> uh, you an, especially if you have an agent that you feel you can trust.
2: This is a thing, and I do believe I can trust her. I do. <laughs> she is actually a Commonwealth person. There you go. This is um, oh. um Sally Harding of the Cook Agency.
0: There you go. Well, with that we might wind up Uh, Redemption and Indigo I think I've lost you
2: again, can you hear me?
0: Yes I can (laughs) I'm just going to say with that we might wind up a little bit I just want to say thank you very much for joining us Karen Uh, It's wonderful to have you on the podcast and also to everybody out there who's listening, uh, you can get Redemption and Indigo from smallbeerpress.com I'm sure they'd love you to sort of whip, whip over and buy a copy and we would recommend it, wouldn't we Gary?
1: Oh, absolutely! I think it's a wonderful novel. I was, uh, as I've said before, and I've, I've actually said this before on the podcast, uh, getting a getting a book which is essentially a manuscript with nothing like that, uh, not, nothing to tell you what to expect from it, and and discovering new things over and over again in Not just not just because you're right. I, I did I didn't recognize the uh, the folktale, and then it it took off in directions that surprised me in, in, in absolutely satisfying ways. Two or three different. Uh, Two or three different times, so I'm really
0: looking forward excellent. to seeing, seeing your next one. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the possibility of a science fiction book—that's intriguing, very intriguing, actually. Thank okay,
2: you. okay. I hope well, you're not
0: earlier, okay. Um, Karen, you <laughs> actually, a couple of minutes when we were <laughs> talking about the number of
1: really excellent fantasy writers who know the way around science fiction, who grew up reading mm-hmm. a combination of science fiction and fantasy. We mentioned, we mentioned uh, Garth Nix, who's, who's a friend and a. Mm-hmm. And, and, one of the leading Australian writers. Robert Holstock is another one. Yep. He uh, had an encyclopedic mm-hmm. knowledge. But what he chose to write was fantasy. Garth's
0: just written mm, a space
1: interesting. opera. Garth's written a space opera?
0: Yeah. Excellent. So there. Okay. Well, on that note, <laughs> thank you very much, Karen. All right. Thank you very much, okay.
2: Jonathan. And thank you very much, Gary. Okay. Take care. Okay. Talk to you. Again. Take care.